This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're uh, back with you again to talk about films, filmsies. So um, what's going on with you? I think the only way to describe it is do, do host, do host <laughs> meech. <laughs> what? Wait. Okay. Do, do host. Do host is that Aphex Twin? Who is singing that? Romstein. Romstein. Oh my God. Has a minute even gone by and we're already referencing Romstein? Also, I, I guess I didn't know what was being said beyond do host. So you've educated well, me on that. Yeah, like if you, if you don't speak German, you know, or you don't, you know, look up lyrics, then you wouldn't. Like, I've been, you know, kind of making up the lyrics to 99 Left Balloons for my entire life because I don't speak German. <laughs> but no, everything's all right. I just, I feel like I want to, I want to pose a question to you because I'm, it's a concern, but it's not like a deep concern of mine, but it's just something I've been turning over in my head a little bit. And I tried writing about it and that didn't work, but I kind of feel like, First and foremost, I feel like we're in an age of advice overload. Like everyone feels like they're qualified to give advice to everyone now. Yes. So, agreed. you know, even just scrolling through Instagram, it's like all these fucking inspirational posts and cartoons. And, and it's like everyone feels like they're qualified to give advice. Whereas I have gone so hard the other way and I'm like no longer giving advice because I don't think I'm qualified to give advice to most people. And I'm a little yes. bit worried that like... I don't know. I don't I don't think it's making me insensitive, but it's definitely removed some part of communication that I've had with people. So just for example, like I feel like people ask me, you know, how do I get into TV writing? And I'm like, I do not know because my path in this life has been so all over the place that unless you literally replicate my life beat for beat, you're not going to get into TV writing the way that I got into TV writing. Right. So I can't give you advice on that because I didn't go through any of the traditional channels. And that's most of my experience with most of my life. But I also feel like no one's listening to my advice anyway. <laughs> so like this is and maybe it's because we're in this age of advice overload. But I've kind of started asking friends and people like when they start asking me for advice or talking about needing advice, I'll say, you know, well, do you do you want my advice or you just want me to listen because yep. nine times out of ten, they just want you to listen. A hundred percent. And I'm happy to do that all day long. Like, that is valuable to me. But I think that we, we're now, like, just in a place where we're constantly seeking advice and not relying on our own, like, wiles and skills and skill set to make our own decisions anymore. So it's just, it's a worry of mine that, like, people are constantly seeking advice 
instead of just sitting with themselves for a minute and being like, what do I think about this? What do I want to do? But then also, there's no way that any, like four people are qualified to give solid advice on this planet. Yeah. <laughs> and like in, in a way that affects a large population, a large swath of the population at once. But yeah, nobody listens to my advice anyway. So I'm like, why am I giving you the same advice for the same shit? And then you're just going to go out and do the same thing and come back and be like, oh man, if it was fucked up again, what do I do? And I'm like, I can't tell. I already told you what to do. Yes. And you didn't do it. <laughs> yes. That I think that's what I think it's mostly about because I totally hear you on this. My thing is that I feel like, and maybe this is how you feel too. I, I waste a lot of energy. If you want my actual advice and you want me to help you, that's a lot of energy that I yes. take to do that. Right. So I think that's where it, where it comes. The exhaustion comes in when people don't listen. Yes. Because you're like, well, I'm fucking like putting all this shit out there for you. And then you blow it off. And this happens every day or every time we talk. So what am I doing? Right. You know? And that's just it. Like, is the function of, is our, is my function in our relationship that I am the listener? Yes. Because I will do that. But let's make that clear that I'm going to listen and I'm not going to give you advice. Right. Like, I'm not going to tell you what to do about anything because we've been down this road so many times and it takes so much out of me. Right. Well, and like, I got to say, <laughs> I don't mean to relate this conversation to something that is in the Vanderpump Rules universe. How could we not? <laughs> How could we not? It's it's just woven so tightly into the fabric of our lives. But I, I was listening to, a you know, so one of these Vanderpump podcasts, like with one of the cast members or one of the ancillary characters that have podcasts, whatever. I don't know. But I was, but it was basically a podcast where Kristen Doty was on it and she was mm. talking about, you know, the the recent scandal that's going on on Vanderpump. And she was talking about this exact same scenario, which is that and she was saying like, I'm a person who's like a doer. Like I'm a fixer. I will help you fix your problems. I get in there. I fuck shit up. Like, but sometimes people don't want that. They just want to bounce drama off of me. But my instinct is to help. Right. Right. And I feel like just have knowing you for as long as I have, I feel like you have that within you too. Like you are a helper. You've always been so gracious with like trying to help me with situations. And, you know, you're you're the first person that's like, let's get it done. Like, no time yeah. to dilly dally. Let's let's change your life. Let's solve your problem. So I I could see you getting super fucking over it when it comes to this. <laughs> like I'm just like I I'm over it. But I feel like you are like all right. I have to fucking pull the line back out of the water. This is too totally. much. Totally, totally. Because it's like and and it's and again, it makes me feel bad because that is my instinct. Like my first reaction to my feelings is like, oh God, this is awful that I feel like I don't want to give people advice anymore. But then when I really sit and think about it, it's like, well, that doesn't fundamentally change our relationship or like my relationship with people. It's just different. Like I'm approaching it differently. And this is the other thing. This is not usually a conversation you can have with people where like you can't just say to them, I'm not going to give you advice, but go ahead and tell me everything. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's not what. You, but you can't. So what I, you know, because that's a hard thing to hear when you when you feel like you need advice. So I usually kind of just say like I'm here to listen, or like you know, in a particular instance with a friend recently, and I, you know, she was 
kind of going off. And I was like, you know, just supporting her and validating her feelings. And that felt great. But I had nothing to say in terms of like, well, you should do this, you should do that. And when I really sat and thought about it, I'm like, well, she didn't ask me for that. So I think it's like, you have to know what you're going to people for. And you have to kind of, you know, kind of grab the reins of that a little bit yourself before you start like leaking all over people. But it also, it's really comes up professionally a lot. And it's it's bizarre to me that a lot of people will ask, like strangers will ask me for writing advice. And then, you know, in the past I've said, I've given them advice, which I thought was practical and applicable to the masses, not just my own situation. And I'll say to people right off the bat, like, well, what do you have? Like, you know, people will come to me like, can you introduce me to your manager? And I'm like, sure. Like, where do you have a script that I can send to them? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, the first mm. part of being a writer is you have to fucking write something. <laughs> like, you have to put something down on paper. They're not just going to take your word for it that you know how to write. And right. so I'm happy to introduce, you know, friends, not any listeners or strangers, sorry. But I'm happy to introduce friends to my manager or to people in my orbit if they want to get into this business. But I have to have something to show them. I can't just be like, my friend really wants to do this. And I think she's cool and you should give her a chance. And then she's like, doesn't write anything for five years. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. As I, as I think the onus is on the person needing the advice to be like very clear about right. like what stage they're in, right? Because it's, I think it's totally fine to be like, listen, I'm just, this is just an exploratory conversation. I haven't written anything yet, but I'm thinking about maybe moving into this business. Yes. Like what, like, what would you say for somebody in my position? For very first steps, like just getting feet wet. Exactly. But, Sometimes people don't give that, you know, no. and they, and they kind of like are like, I want to be famous, like this. They just like come to you and say, I want to be famous and rich, like right. just some very broad, <laughs> like, how do I do that? And you're just like, all right, do I need to actually fucking unpack this shit with you? Right. Like, come on. And when it comes down to it, a lot of it is just the unwillingness or the fear of doing the work. And I'm like, well, that's yeah. something, that's a different conversation. If you're like, I really want to do this, but I'm afraid I don't know how to do it, or I don't know how to start, or I don't know how to write, or I don't know how to, that's a totally different conversation. Yeah. You know, just coming to me and saying, I have a good idea. Will you pass it on to people who could turn it into a TV show? And I'm like, I, I can't. <laughs> that's not yeah. how any of this works. And so it's just, it's hard because I want to be a supportive person. But I also, and I don't want to seem insensitive, but I also feel like there's a certain amount of energy and time that I no longer have for this kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, I remember, I think what's hard about it too is I remember when I was, you know, younger or not in the point of life that I'm at right now and really feeling frustrated because I'm like, wow, like I feel like I'm a good writer and I want to write, but I don't know how to do it and no one's giving me a way in. Like I totally understand those feelings, Mm -hmm. but I took it upon myself to start just making steps in any direction that I thought would lead me to where I wanted to go. Yeah. And I don't see a lot of that. And it's, you know, and advice about relationships. I'm like, that's the hardest for me because I am a totally different kind of person when it comes to relationships. So if you come to me for advice, nine times out of 10, I'm going to be like, well, why don't you just fucking leave? (laughs) I am am not someone who puts up with bullshit. So if you come to me with the same bullshit for six years about your partner, I'll be like, you need to look at your whole fucking relationship. Like this is no longer just a, they leave the toilet seat up conversation. This is like, are you fucking compatible? And you don't want to hear that from me. 
I know. (laughs) And like, that's, I'm that way too. It's so, it's terrible, but this is terrible to admit. And I'll just admit it. Why not? I, I mean, I have had little to no patience for sort of the same types of relationship problems in the past that my friends have come to me with while also being some bitch that dwells on some shit and needs to get over it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm my own worst enemy sometimes. And like, granted, I haven't like seriously dated it. Like, I haven't gone out there and like, like hit the pavement in a while. But when I was, I was a mess. I mean, I was like, you know, just like everybody else. And then I expected all of this grace from yep. all of my friends being like, I want to talk about the same dumb bullshit every single day for months. Meanwhile, you know, I have this very hard line attitude right. when it's like somebody's like, I'm unhappy. I'm like, change your fucking life. <laughs> Goodbye. You know, I'm like, God, that's so mean. But I hate to admit that, but that's how I am. So I'm trying to strike a balance. I'm trying to give more patience towards it. Right. While... At the same time, also believing in the idea that after a certain age, you gotta go and work on stuff. Like, you gotta. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if the same issues are coming up for you time and time again, you gotta go work on stuff. Absolutely. I can't help you. You know what I mean? And that's nine times out of ten the kind of advice that I'll give, which is like, well, this is, seems like a pattern for you. You should talk to someone about it. Like, you should do yeah. some, th- some real professional deep diving about it or some personal deep diving about it, but recognize the pattern. And nobody wants to fucking hear that. This is the uh, – I, I think that's the hardest thing about giving advice is that it's so possible for me to hurt someone's feelings unintentionally. Yeah, me too. Just because I'm like the same way where I'm just like, you know – Change your fucking life. Like, do something about it. You know, and it's not even like, oh, stop, quit your bitching. It's just like, oh, like, I see where this is frustrating or hard for you, but there are things you can do about it. You just don't want to do those things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's harsh. That's fucking harsh as hell to hear when you're like, I'm sad and I'm upset and I need someone to help me and hold me. And I'm like dropping you on a fucking pavement. (laughs) Emotionally dropping you on the pavement. I know. And like, and trust me, like, I mean, everything that I've gone through in the past, like, couple months with the job stuff, like, I'm that person. Like, I'm like, like, if you call me right now, I'm complaining. Right, right. bitching. But I'm also in therapy, and I'm trying to solve my own problems, (laughs) too. So it's like, that's the thing, is that I'm like, I'm actively working towards trying to rectify my situation. Completely. Uh, so I feel like I, I have some level of accountability for my own thing, but I can also understand it. Like, there are people that just, like, I, I, I sometimes love the darkness sometimes yes. where I'm like, I just want to complain about the shittiness of this. And, like, I love it. And it's like, I love bitching. I love a story to tell. Yes. And it feels good, but after a certain amount of time, at least for me, I'm like, God, I can't stand myself. Like, what the fuck? I've been going on and on about this shit forever, and like, I need to get a new story. You know? Well, and that's and but and again, I completely agree. And I think, but I think that is also that's a good place to be in a friendship where you're like, I'm going to complain about this again, and I just need you to fucking hear me. I'm like, great, like let's break it down, like because I know that if you, for a lot of people, I feel and myself included. 
if you just have the release, sometimes that's all you need to start taking those steps to solving it. So I'm like, yeah. all the, I'm completely there for it to help you talk through shit because yeah. you're putting in work. That is still you putting in work. That's not you dumping it on someone else and being like, you fix it. Yeah. <laughs> like you're still well, considering and, it. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is that like when you, I feel like, and I don't know if this is your experience, when you're talking to friends and family and whatnot, when you can tell when somebody has put in the work. Because yes. it's like, it's, it doesn't feel, it feels more constructive. And I don't really know how to explain that. Where, you know, the conversation is no, not just me like dumping my problems onto you and in you just having to wade through it. It's more like, a, I don't know, I feel like, th- like there's ideas that are bouncing off of each other. Yes. You know, and it's not, it's more of like a two-way street versus just like, just sit there and, be a bucket for all of this stuff, you know? Yes, I mean? absolutely. That is that is exactly it, where I feel like I'm definitely at a point in my life where I'm leaning, like I used to take a lot of pride in being a hard bitch because that was like the armor I took out into the world of yes. like, like, you can't fuck with me. And like, and that was just pain, you know, masquerading as toughness, but it was just uh-huh. like, I'm sad. I don't know what to do about it. So I'll just be like a hard bitch yes. uh, so that nobody can get in and hurt my feelings because I'm very sensitive. Yes. <laughs> Like that is truly something I had to learn about myself over time. So now I mm-hmm. I 100% lean towards, you know, wanting to build like real relationships and real community and leaning towards tenderness. Like I don't want to be a hard bitch anymore. And I don't think I am a hard bitch, but I definitely think that I have hard lines. And yes. that's just something that I have to negotiate within myself. And I think that it's, you know, nobody wants to hear my hard lines most of the time because – Everything that led me to where I am is something I'm still figuring out. I don't know how the fuck I got this life. Yeah. I, like, I'm still explaining that to myself every fucking day. Like, that's a conversation yeah. I have with myself constantly. I wake up and I'm like, how the fuck did I end up in this goddamn house at this point in my life, in middle age, in the town I grew up in, with this career? Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm still, like I'm, that's the other thing. Like, you still have to understand that, like, you're always going to be negotiating shit with yourself. And you have to do that work first. So I think it's, you know, I don't want to be a hard bitch. I don't want to be insensitive, but I also don't want to keep kind of misplacing energy and giving people what they don't need or want, Um, especially if they're looking at Instagram all day and it's like, you know, you're a bad bitch and you should do this to be a bad bitch. And I'm like, I'm not, I can't give you that advice. (laughs) There's a 13 year old on TikTok who can give you that advice. Right. Well, it is. I think it's totally fine. I think it's fine. Everybody's fine. Everybody's reaction is fine. Like you're, you're doing what you need to do, you know, to protect your energy and to, you know, basically like cultivate like honest friendships with people or relationships with people because you shouldn't be the fucking, you know, I'm just going to fluff you all day person. Exactly. I mean, it's just not. That's not sustainable. But as the person who, you know, is the aggrieved party, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, it is hard to hear the hard lines because that happened to me the other day where I was talking to an old coworker of mine complaining about, you know, looking for jobs, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, (laughs) I don't know what was going on with her that day, but she was shooting all my balloons out of the sky. Like, she was just like, (laughs) that's a bad idea, and I'll tell you why. Don't apply for that job, and I'll tell you why. Don't pivot to this career, and I'll tell you why. And I was like, holy fucking shit. (laughs) 
And guess what, though? That sometimes... I need that. And sometimes I don't. And I think right? it's okay for me to be like, you know what? Let me let me not talk to you for a little while. I need to get a little bit tougher about, about right. this. We will return to this friendship in a second. But at the moment, I'm, right. I'm feeling very hurt by it. And I just have to like work through that stuff. I'm not saying she's a bad person or but that energy, that specific type of right. hard ass energy. I just had to put on a back burner and return to it when I'm just re- more ready to hear that kind of stuff, right? Absolutely. So, Abs- and that that is never more evident to me than when I think about, you know, all of my long-term friendships and how how much they've helped me or hurt me when I talk about my own depression. Like, I put my friends through some fucking shit. Like, there are people who I am friends with who have never been depressed and have helped me so much and just been there for me and understand that I'm going through something, even if they don't understand what it is. And I appreciate that. But there are also times like when you're depressed and someone's like, well, just cheer up. And you're like, I fucking hate you. Like, I can't, yeah. <laughs> like, I can't take the advice that you have to offer because it doesn't apply to me. Yes. But, you know, so I know that in my own life, I have definitely, I think that's why I'm making this kind of pivot for myself. Cause I know that I have done that with people in the past where I'm like, I don't understand. I'm sad and I'm depressed and I'm down and I'm like suicidal. And I just, you know, I've put people through some shit and they've done their best to help me. But then what I had to realize is, oh, this is a me thing. This is between me and my brain. And I have to get real help for this. And I do that now. Like I've been in therapy for fucking ages, but I'm able to, I've able to have learned some tools to help myself first and foremost, not get to that place, like not get so low, like between medication and talk therapy, like it's really helpful to me. But also when I do feel a little depressed or I do feel a little down, I have a different language to talk to people about now, not expecting advice, just explaining this is how I'm feeling. You know, can you tell me a joke? Can you cheer me up? Like I tell them what I need now if I feel that way. And so, yeah, it's it's hard to have been that person. But then now that I'm on the other side of it, realizing like, oh, God, that is just it's a lot of growth and you yes. just can't expect. And it's not fair for me to expect people to grow at the same pace that I am growing. So I just kind of need to yeah. back off on the advice train. Um, and that came up a lot for me. When I, I think is the reason I'm really thinking about it now is watching your movie this week. It came up a lot where I was like, this motherfucker, like these fucking people in this movie, (laughs) like the advice I would give is not anything they want to hear. And one character in particular was like not wanting to hear anything anyone had to say. Yep. Yep. Well, and like, and to the point of my film this week too, these are people who I think give a lot of unsolicited advice, which I feel is the opposite energy of what you're trying to do right now. Yes. Like that is a whole other thing where I'm like, can you imagine? I hope I'm not doing, I hope I'm not that person, by the way, because it's like that thing where you're like, oh, I hate this thing that I see in myself every single minute. But I'm like, imagine somebody who just gives out so much unsolicited advice that people just need to smack them across the face at a diner or whatever. For (laughs) real. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like if somebody comes to you and they're like, uh, I'm pregnant. What should I do? And you're like, well, first thing, what you should do is get a fucking job. It's like people who just give unsolicited advice about shit. It's like I didn't ask you about that. We're like, what you, what you should do first is uh, get a fucking haircut because you look like a ghoul. And like, you're like, I asked you about my father is dying or something like that. Yeah, I would rather. Ah, oh God, I would rather get 
no advice than too much advice. Exactly. (laughs) Or unsolicited advice. Yes. Because I think in my personality, I'm like, I don't need a mom. Do not mom me right now. I'd rather you emotionally starve me than to... (laughs) Be an emotional feeder or whatever. I I can't. Like, I, oh my God. That movie, I swear to God, I was like, I've seen my movie a thousand times and I saw it again going, oh my God, this would, I could not hang. I could not exactly. hang with this shit at could all. Could not. Well, let, let's get into it because I love oh both God. of our movies this week. They both have a little tinge of this. Yes. But I am definitely excited to talk about yours for sure. So our theme this week, I think, is really interesting. I feel like we wanted to talk about these movies at a, like separately, and then we were like, let's just put them together and make a theme for them. Is that what yeah. happened? Yeah, and I, it, it also came on the heels of, like, when I was in Atlanta a few months ago, and we went and saw Banshees of Anna Sharon. Yes. Um, and that was the first movie I saw in theaters post-pandemic stuff. And, you know, a big part of the the discussion around that movie is that Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson are teamed up again with Martin McDonough. So it just got me thinking about like actors who work together a lot and kind of seeing that over the the trajectory of their careers is interesting to me, like to see how they work together over time. And the fact that they keep coming back and wanting to work together is interesting to me. And I know that, you know, that, that was just my first thought because that's, the movie that we saw. There are a lot of women who do that too. I know we'll probably get emails because people just cannot help themselves. No, (laughs) we're not actively excluding women from this category. These just happen to be the first two movies that came up because of what we had just seen um, and what we were discussing after we saw that that one movie. Um, But it is. It's interesting to me when any actor is able to work with another actor again and again and again and kind of seeing how their professional relationship develops over time. That's interesting to me. Yeah. And this is probably going to be a recurring theme. So don't get your underwear all bunched up. Like we, we will do it again and it's not going to be so straight male, I guess. Um, But we'll, uh, (laughs) No, it's true. Like, I and I feel like I I give I've noticed in the past few episodes that I've been giving disclaimers a lot. Speaking of unnecessary advice, <laughs> unsolicited advice, I've been giving these disclaimers. It's not all of you. It's just that we do get a lot of you know we do get people who write in feeling you know kind of not giving us the benefit of the doubt that we understand what we're doing. Yeah, just give us the B of the D. Okay, <laughs> Jesus H. Like. Just cut us some slack. Give us some B of the D, C, C of the S, C us some S. I don't know. Can we get a t-shirt that says, give us the B of the D? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) I totally know what you mean. Like, come on. Like, we haven't forgotten things just because we don't say them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I certainly haven't forgotten that I have seen my movie about 304,000 times (laughs) in the course of my life. God. This is going to be embarrassing, by the way. This is is going to take a real embarrassing turn. Fully. Your movie is, we're going to get into some deep diving about personalities for both of us in your movie. And I'm not looking forward to it, but it also has to be said. Yes. And let's talk about your movie because I obviously had recently seen it again because I actually went to Bruges for the first time. So I'm so excited to be talking about this movie. Well, my film was released in 2008. 
The screenplay is by Martin McDonough. The, it was directed by Martin McDonough. And my movie is In Bruges. For two weeks, in Bruges, in a room like this, with you? No way. I have also been to Bruges. I went, God, like 15 years ago. And it was, and I took the train from Paris to Bruges to Amsterdam. And it was incredible. And Bruges, if, if you're not familiar with the movie, if you're not familiar with the place, it's a it's a medieval city, like a preserved medieval city in Belgium. And it's very quaint and beautiful. And there's a lot of canals. And it's just like a to- very touristy place. But it's also a place where people live and work and, you know, have full lives. So it's and it's a it's a, a kind of place where you can visit where like you can't really see what you're seeing anywhere else. Yeah. And I know you yeah. loved it. Like that was your favorite part of the trip you just took. Yeah, it was my favorite part of of being in Europe for the short period of time that I was there. I honestly cuz it's to me like I'm always fascinated by seeing architecture and like landscape that I don't get to see living in the south in Right the United States, right? You're so like, we don't have any turrets and castles yeah, and shit. <laughs> there are no cobblestone streets. I mean, there might be some in Charleston, but definitely not around here. Right. And, um, you know, it's just a thing of like, I don't know, the kind of gothicness of the, of the churches and, uh, you know, I mean, that's a huge part of the comedy of the film is talking yes. about that kind of stuff. But to me, I thought it was so charming. I loved that it was like, it was like a little village, but also felt kind of modern like it had kind of this i don't want to like maybe a scandinavian Mm -hmm. design vibe to it but also being old and medieval i don't know how if that makes any sense at all yeah it's like like modern and ancient at the same time it completely it completely makes sense to me yeah and it's because it feels like it's out of step with time but then you're still like you're watching people walk around these towers with like iphones so it's, it's a very it's a strange place to put yourself in as a tourist, but it's it all makes sense when you're there. Like there's yeah. a town market square and like a, you know, it's just it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. And I did actually walk past this like real estate company and I was like, how much is it to rent a one bedroom here? Ooh, and how much is it? It was a f- pretty affordable. I think I saw one bedroom for like 1200 euro. A what? Month. I know. I was like, holy fucking shit. Okay, if you're like a telecommuting kind of employee in this day and age, I don't understand why you're not moving to places like Bruges. <laughs> like, go to a place where it's super fucking cheap and interesting and weird and you can, like, travel to the rest of Europe or the rest of that continent or the rest of that country. Like, if you're able to, there are affordable, weird places out there that you could just have an experience in. I can see you living in Bruges. Ugh. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I get because I I kind of thought that too. I was like, oh, I could live here. And the only problem is the cold. Right. Like, you know how I feel about cold weather now. Now that I'm like a full fucking elderly woman, I hate cold weather. I'm in Boca Raton now in a mineral bath in my old lady bathing suit. I'm just like, I don't know. What happened to me? I lost all my edge. I mean, you won't even come visit me in the winter. And I'm like, you've been at Florida five times last month alone. And you're like, yeah, because it's fucking warm. <laughs> like, I ain't coming to see you until June through September only. <laughs> and it's crazy because I grew up in the South and it's very hot down here. And I always hated that. Always right. hated it. I mean, shit, there are times now where it just is too damn hot and I just get like, oh, I'm just very quick to anger. Absolutely. But now I'm like... <laughs> 
I think about how I feel in cold weather versus how I feel in extremely hot weather. And I'm like, I hate being cold more now. Exactly. And it's a turning point for me, I guess. I don't know. Well, I can see you living in Bruges part time. Mm. <laughs> and we both visited Bruges in the winter, which is, I think, a whole different experience. Like I was there around um, Christmas time and the lights were up and it was just like this totally different experience. But I also was looking most forward to um, like I had a hotel room. My ex-husband and I had a hotel room on overlooking a canal. And I'm like, this is going to be so beautiful and lovely. And it was frozen fucking solid. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Frozen solid. And I'm like, this is where I'm a dumb traveler because I'm like, it's going to be so pretty. It's like, no, it's not like a rushing river. It's a fucking canal yeah. and it freezes. And it did not even occur to me. So I'm like, oh, this is fine, I guess. And then I got divorced because of that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> then you ended it right there. Ended it immediately. But yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. And this movie is so centered around Bruges. It's like such a, a crucial part of, you know, the geography of the film is such a crucial part of the film. And I'm going to give you my one, one sentence synopsis and then we're going to go into the, a little bit of the movie and a lot of the relationship between these characters and these actors. My one sentence synopsis is after a botched hit that leaves an innocent child dead, two hitmen are sent to Bruges to hide out. Perfect. So that's what's up. And the the two hitmen and the people that are the stars of this film and the daring duos that I wanted to, to, to discuss are Colin Farrell playing Ray and Brendan Gleeson playing Ken. Oh, also, I'm going to take a second here. In, when we talked about Frank, I was pronouncing um, Domino Gleeson's name wrong. And someone in the comments um, very kindly broke down how... In, Ir- in Ireland, you can pronounce his name with like an SH or a W. So his name is actually Downal Gleason. And mm. I'm like, even hotter. Great. Yeah. I think that's my issue, right? I'm the one that said it. <laughs> no, I said it too. I've been oh, calling okay. him Domino Gleason for years. So I yeah. just wanted to point out that, like, now that we're talking about his dad, <laughs> okay. that he named his child Downal Gleason. And Donald? Uh, Downal. D- Downal. Downal. Okay. But Got it. I've made important. that correction. Correct, corrected it. I mean, if we end, one of us ends up marrying him, we're going to have to learn how to pronounce his name anyway. <laughs> but I'm like, great. You can call your... I love nothing more than... And there's so many videos and YouTubes and it's so funny. I love nothing more than seeing a mixture of vowels and consonants in Ireland and it's nothing like you think it's going to be pronounced. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> no, I love it more than anything where it's like I-T-R-U-V-L. And they're like, that's Diana. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, I wonder incredible. if he goes by Dom. You think he, he uses Dom? He probably goes by Dom or Down. Down. Oh, down. Damn it, I did it again! <laughs> I miss, I have to make another correction. Down. Boop, 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 boop. Dom to Dow. Dom da 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 da. That's a very musical name. Yeah. But yeah. So his his dad is the shit, basically, um, and that's <laughs> we're gonna talk a lot about that. But what I love about this movie is that it's so the movie itself is a very very dark comedy, and it's kind of an interesting look at at why and how people justify murder or their own bad actions. 
there's kind of an unlikely love story in here. And as you understand more about the crime that brought these two men to Bruges, you also understand how Ken came to work for Harry. Um, their boss is played by Ray Fiennes, who is incredible in this movie. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, his bullshit comments about J.K. Rowling aside, he's incredible in this movie. <laughs> God. So, yeah. So, like, they're, you know, kind of you understand more about how they came to be there. And then you're, what you're really doing and what I love about the script, like the screenplay is incredible. And it's like you're kind of looking at this flower unfolding of the emotional lives of these characters. And these are people who are paired together for work. Like they're they're just coworkers. And this was um Ray's first job and he fucked up royally. So you're looking at this kind of paternalistic attitude coming from Ken towards the very young Ray. And it really just sets up an interesting dynamic for them that I think was also sort of replicated in Banshees of Inisherin to a certain point. Like they're kind of this is you know that was the second time that they played this unlikely pairing where one of the friends is more kind of mature and advanced than the other one and is trying to teach them a harsh lesson or teach teach them a harder lesson. One thing that I love about Ray is that he's he's super ignorant, like he's naive and ignorant and he's kind of a prick. Um he uses completely even at the time 2008 like outdated references and and calls people the wrong things and it's just like not concerned with being a, a sensitive member of society. <laughs> um, but he's also deeply troubled and he's unable to forgive himself for this error, you know, for this mistake. And then on the flip side, you have Ken, who's this very stoic and, you know, but kind of pleasant guy. Um, and he sees his work as a means to an end, but you can tell that he really believes in in loyalty and honor and doing the right thing. And he kind of lives life his life on those terms. So he's paired with this complete maniac, like young, emotionally unstable dude. <laughs> and he's the exact opposite. And there's nothing that brings that, that out more than when they arrive in Bruges. And again, one of the through lines of comedy in this movie is that Ray fucking hates it. He's like, in Bruges? Like, he's just constantly like, Bruges? Really? (laughs) (laughs) Of all the fucking places in the world that Harry could have sent us, he sent us here. And there, again, there is a reason. And you come to find out the reason he sent them specifically to that place. And it's one of the things that I just absolutely love about this screenplay is that it's a very layered story and each character kind of gets a full exploration of their emotional life, but everything ties together. There's not, there's not one ounce of fat in this movie. Like every character, everything that happens, it all ties together. And it's kind of reminiscent of the Coen brothers to me in that way, where they make Mm -hmm. these big swings for comedy or big swings for what looks like it's going to be effective just in one scene. And then you see at the end of the movie how it plays into this much larger story. I fucking love that. Yes. Fucking love it. So, again, there's nothing more more indicative of this unlikely pairing, this unlikely relationship than when they arrive in Bruges. And Ken is, like, totally into it. He's like a tourist. He's like, we're going to fucking wait for this phone call from Harry. He's going to tell us what to do next. It might be a job. It might be we're moving somewhere else because Harry cannot forgive the fact that this child has been killed. And Ken is into it. He's like, this is great. He's, like, going through the guidebook. And, give, and meanwhile... Ray's, you know, the character of Ray is just kind of like huddled in a fucking boat on a canal with his coat up and his shoulders hunched, his arms crossed. And he's like, I fucking hate every bit of this. 
and I was reading the, the review in um, on Roger Ebert dot com, and when the film came out, he said, and I quote. When Ken wants to climb an old tower for the view, Ray argues, why do I have to climb up there to see down here? I'm already down here. He is likewise unimpressed by glorious paintings, macabre sculptures, and picturesque canals, but is as thrilled as a kid when he comes across a film being shot, end quote. So Mm. you have this, like, very interesting mix of childishness and and anger in Ray that you don't see in Ken. So I think that instantly sets them up to have— an interesting relationship. And in real life, Brendan Gleeson is 67 and Colin Farrell is 46 right now. So there's like a 20-year age difference in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so interesting to watch these two play off of each other again in, in its unlikely way where it makes sense that they'd be in each other's lives, but you can also see where so much of the friction would come from the fact that they have to be in each other's lives. <laughs> Yeah, I. This is like the thing that I think is so interesting about the idea that they're they have worked together on two films because I feel like I don't know if this is just my interpretation or maybe you will feel this as well, but like I feel like their characters, their characters in in Bruges are the same that they are in Banshees of Inisherin in that. Colin Farrell's character is like the more kind of gleefully unaware numbnuts type, right. <laughs> you know? And then like Brendan Gleason's just like the absolute opposite. He's like deeply pondering existence. He's definitely got a case of the sads. You don't really know why. And to me, that's why, like, I feel like and maybe this is like what we first talked about at the beginning of this episode, just this like deeply relatable dynamic. Yes. Because I think I've been one half of this dynamic, both sides of it at a certain right. point in my life, like where I was the idiot, you know, or I was the philosophical dark one or whatever, right. you know? Right. But I mean, even though this movie, like, totally is different from Banshees of Inisherin. Those characters seem the same to me. I don't know if you think that. No, I completely agree because I think that at the at the core, what I love about both films is that we're watching, we're exploring not just unlikely friendships, but unfulfilling friendships. So like what happens when you're in an unfulfilling relationship and it's just one of you who feels like this is doomed or this is not going to work or I hate this. And that definitely comes through in Bruges where Ken is like, I just work with this guy. This is our first job. And now I have to fucking hide out and I have to go to Bruges and I have to like drag him through this process of not being captured and not being, you know, put in jail. Like he's got to kind of like teach him the ropes on the fly and he's sick of it. Like he's, he hates it. Um, He'll do it because of his honor and loyalty, but he hates it. Right. It's like having to be in charge of like a a real wild card. And you're just like, okay, like, how's this going to go? Exactly. Right? And I love I love that because I think that's a that's a cornerstone of adult life that is rarely looked at. Like, like you said, like we just talked about in the beginning of the episode where, you know, not a lot of art explores the unfulfilling side of relationship. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually the opposite where it's like, let's watch people fall in love or become closer and like I'm more interested in seeing the the fractures you know I like that in this film we get to see the very fractured nature of their relationship and I think it's why they're so good together I think that yeah. like their physicality 
is so different that it makes it easy to get into that role with them. But yeah. then the characters that they're playing are so wildly different. And I think it's it's just brilliant casting that has led to, you know, a, really a wealth of seeing an evolving friendship on screen that I think is happening in real life. Like, I feel like when, you know, you see interviews with them or um, hear them talking about each other, it's like they're very committed to each other as actors. And and, and Colin Farrell has a great reverence for Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson has a great reverence for Colin Farrell. Like, they both do different things and they're different types of actors, but it just works. It just fucking works. So I think that the casting of this film was crucial to the success of this film. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think I, the reason I picked this film, because there are, again, lots of duos, and we will do this again, I'm sure. Um, but I really appreciate that we've recently got to see them reconnect and explore this particular on-screen relationship again. Yeah. I wanted to ask you if what you thought about, because, you know, Martin McDonough, the director and writer of this film, you know, um, obviously, like, kind of, more prolific as a playwright than a director. He only directed like four films so far, right? right? But I also I don't know what you think about this, but I I always can tell sort of maybe when a movie is either based off of a play or it was written by a playwright. Mm-hmm. And on. I feel like that's that's like part of like this movie for me too is that it feels like a play almost, you yes. know? Yes, because there are stark lines where you can kind of see the act ending, even yes. though it, it flows very nicely. But you can see the decision that was made to like, this is where we're going to talk about this. This is where we're going to do this. And then this is how we're going to tie it all together. Because yeah. a lot of plays do that. Like a lot of playwrights are very adept at that, at, at the storytelling aspect of it and kind of connecting, connecting a story in a linear way that maybe can't be told in a linear way. Yeah. <laughs> so I agree. I think that it's it's very clear to me that he's a playwright just because of how he treats the development of the characters. Yeah, exactly. They're more it's kind of more of like a character study. And and you and then because of that, you can really get into like the philosophical musings of characters almost. Exactly. Yeah, you know there's this, I mean? this scene where um Brendan Gleeson, you know, Ken leaves the room one morning to go buy a gun and um when Ray wakes up, he turn his back is towards the camera and then he turns towards the camera and he just starts crying like quietly where there's just like single tears coming. And there's no dialogue, but you're like, fuck, like I yeah. get this guy. Like I understand what he's going through. And it's just it's really masterful. And it's those kind like the ability to leave some subtlety, I think, is also a strong playwright move, yeah. um, which I always appreciate. Yeah. I think that this movie is a gem. I mean, I think it's actually a perfect example of like a sleeper movie, which is like, you know, a movie that maybe kind of came when it was released was kind of quiet, but then people have subsequently figured out that it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I feel about this movie because I feel like, I don't know if I saw this when it came out. I can't remember when I first saw this movie, but I just remember so many people I know talked about it like the right people in my life talked about it right, right. The funny cool people were like man in bruges is so great you got to see this movie and i was like i think i remember when that movie came out and then yeah and then i finally saw it I was like oh yeah this movie is really good yeah I, I saw it when it came out and i think 
what was cool about watching it when it came out is that, and this lends itself to this kind of daring duo um, theme, is that, I don't know if you guys remember, but Colin Farrell was fucking wild. Yes, I was going to, I wanted to ask you about this too. He was. That, I think it's a huge part of why oh I maybe God. didn't see it when it first oh, came yeah. out. Oh, yeah, because he was fucking, a, he was a wild man. And he has talked about it himself in interviews recently and like through all of his Oscar buzz. He's like, yeah, I was definitely in it. (laughs) Like I was in that life of like tabloid shit and sex tapes and like just doing wild shit. And so for him to do this kind of film at that point in his life was incredibly evocative. And I think that pairing him, like giving him a character that had some of the you know, again, that, that naivete and that youthful kind of mistake-ridden uh, life, to give that to the character, knowing that the actor has very recently experienced that himself, and then pairing him with, again, this very paternalistic, you know, kind of more solid, stable actor and character was incredible. But it was wild to see Colin Farrell in this role when it came out, because that is not what anyone publicly thought of him or his ability as an actor or a person. Yes. Okay. So, like, <laughs> this is, I just went to his Wikipedia page. Under the personal life, there are subheaders relationships and children, drug addiction, sex tape, stalker. Jesus Christ. And that's just the tip of the fucking iceberg. <laughs> Holy fucking shit. Imagine what um, he's experienced that we don't know about. <laughs> good Lord. And he's not, I mean, is he, he's like our age. He's he is 46. like our age. <laughs> Yeah, he is 46. The man has lived. The man yes. has lived. And then again, like, just like like a month ago, we saw him at the Oscars with his 13-year-old. Like, he's just the dad now. <laughs> but well, like, and like, I think this is an absolute, this is the type of chicks we are. Let's get serious. But like, we like him in the old period. That is how I feel about <laughs> Colin Farrell to a T. Because I remember when he was dating fucking Britney Spears and all that stuff. And I was like, I don't like this guy. He's like, I know he's wearing his like 10 pack of like white ribbed tank tops. And he's, does he have a chain wallet? I remember there being big pants or maybe a chain wallet or something. And he was out partying with like the Paris Hilton world. (laughs) And I was like, I do not fuck with this guy. What is, what is this guy doing? But then I really do think it was around the time of In Bruges. I feel like that's when maybe he like pivoted to being more of a because he was in a lot of like blockbustery type of things. Yeah, for Alexander for a long time and phone booth and like he did big old movies. Yeah, and then all of a sudden he's in like what is that director Yorgos Lanthimos? Oh yeah, or whatever. He's in like those types of movies and he's in these like art films and you're like. Well, what the hell happened here? Maybe I got to start paying attention to this guy. Then he shows up at Banshees of Inishir and he's like an older man. And I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) I fuck with this. Like this, this version 2.0 of like an older elder statesman, Colin Farrell. I, I think I like this. So absolutely. I mean, he's he's been on my radar since he was in a TV show called Bally Kiss Angel which used okay. to be a show that I absolutely fucked with, like a PBS-style show about a fucking priest. And <laughs> I'm like, yep, I'm in it. He was in that show as a much younger, like 19. And I'm like, who's this guy? He's interesting. 
But then he started doing all that fuck shit. And I was like, okay, yeah. he, ain't, he ain't for me. He ain't yeah. for me. His movies ain't for me. He ain't for me. Watching him level up to like Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Lobster, In Bruges, yes. like it has changed my, in- watching him change the trajectory of his own life has changed yeah. my appreciation of him as someone who is willing to learn and grow and become or use his skills as an actor in a way that is very, very enticing. I love watching him act now. Like you can see it's an appreciation I did not have for him when he was younger. Yeah, Uh, totally agree. And I don't know. I just think it's obviously like something that you and I (laughs) share. We're like, uh, let's skip to the end. Like, let's... (laughs) Like, 20s and 30s, like, well, let's you get your kicks. But what are you doing now that you're, like, a middle-aged man? Absolutely. Here, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, look, you know Brendan Gleeson is my boy. I would rip yeah. through, I would rip through the Gleeson family like a fucking bullet train. <laughs> just, know, just know this about me. They're all hot. And Brendan Gleeson with his big ears and his cute little face, like, I would run through that family like a fucking bullet train. Look, I I hear you. That's how I feel about the scars guards. Okay, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but the scars guards. It starts with Stellan. Like, yeah. you keep your fucking Bills and your Alex, and like, it starts with Stellan, and then we work our way back. Listen, well, this the you know how we feel about these acting dynasties, <laughs> these red <You> know. actors. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. I. I, and, and I love what I what I also love is that like you know yes we got to see a tremendous amount of growth with Colin Farrell's acting over the years that again for yeah. me started with this movie in my own life but I think Brendan Gleeson has been put on the map as an actor who can do so much more than he was given credit for in his early career right. and it's lovely and wonderful to see him take risks and take big swings and kind of be willing to, again, like maybe through this relationship with Martin McDonough and Colin Farrell or Colin Farrell, but he's kind of going, he constantly goes back to the well and comes up with something that is unexpected. And I just really appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad you picked this movie. Me too. I love it. And I look, your movie, it's, this might be a three-hour podcast. (laughs) Might be. Might be. I want to share a little secret that, with our listeners because I feel like this has only happened one other time in the history <laughs> of our podcast. And it happened very early on, which is that I came to the episode this week thinking that my movie was in Bruges. Yes. That I was going to be presenting in Bruges. So we both prepared for the same film, essentially. And that happened early on with Step Up and Fame. Yes. And I was like, girl, why would I pick Step Up? I've never seen it. (laughs) (laughs) This is my first time watching it. Why would I pick a Channing Tatum dance film when you're here, right? I don't know why I thought I had fame. I was like, I don't, I just, and I went hard on the research, you know, the the research holes, you know how they are. (laughs) But much like that episode... You had seen Step Up so much that you could riff <laughs> easily. Yeah. And I think that yeah. is gonna, what's going to happen with this film, too. Like, we, we got this. Oh, and I have seen Swingers an embarrassing amount of times. And we're, we're going to get into it. So I, I don't even have to look at the freaking 
anything. Like I'm like I know what's going on. So it, it'll be no a notes. riff, but I'm gonna have a, there's a lot of meat on this bone, so don't worry about it. But <laughs> my movie for the theme daring duos it's a movie from 1996 it was written by john favreau directed by doug lyman and it's called swingers i don't want you to be the guy in the pg-13 movie everyone's really hoping makes it happen i want you to be like the guy in the rated r movie 1996 jesus fucking hell what were you doing in 96 do you remember I was a goddamn motherfucking mess. So in 1996, I had just left my first year of college in Boston. I left college and moved to San Francisco area. So I was working as a barista and waking up super early and like opening a coffee shop in a mall. <laughs> and it was a Gloria Jeans. Uh, and then I was partying in San Francisco at night. Uh, I had my own apartment. I'm t- fully, fully independent at, you know, when this, when this movie came out, I was 18, 19 years old. And it was a bleak, it was fun, but it was a bleak time in terms of the men in my life. Yes. Like here, yes. this, this whole resurgence of swing dancing and, and it hurt my heart. Like I could not hang. I am six feet tall. When I go into a thrift store, I'm not getting a cute vintage dress. I'm getting like a man's jacket. Yeah. So, like, the whole look wasn't for me. The music wasn't for me. When I hear fucking Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, I have a similar reaction <laughs> that I do to Sublime. When I hear Go Daddy Ill, I'm like, you better turn this fucking off before I flip this car with my bare hands. More like Go Daddy No. Go <laughs> Daddy No. Give, me, give him the B and the D. Go Daddy No. <laughs> I will not give um, him the BAD. But just that 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 kind of return to like the Sinatra loving, like I just, it didn't hit me. It didn't yeah. sit with me. I was like a heavy metal punk girl yeah, who was fully independent and paying bills and rent. And I'm like, I don't have time to learn how to fucking swing dance. Ooh. Well, unfortunately, in 96... I was trying to dress like a film noir villain. <laughs> and I would drive downtown with my friends to this club called The Masquerade. Oh, damn. Which was, yeah, it was essentially like a multi-level music venue that was entirely painted black. And we would spend our evenings listening to fucking Benny Goodman in these no! stupid fucking vintage clothes. Yes, I was all in. No, you were not. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> Embarrassed as hell to admit this, and it is truly because of this movie. Oh, okay. My, this movie did some damage. It has ruined lives for years. Cultural and damage. I, <laughs> cultural, psychic, cultural, mental, physical, I... Look, physical damage, meaning I tried to swing dance and I was terrible. (laughs) There was this one guy that I knew that actually knew how to swing dance. Like, his name was Peter. And I I realized something about partner dancing, Mm. which is that I think that I'm too... I'm too much in control to want to be, like, the passive partner. Absolutely. Like, I don't want to be flung around. I want to get my bearings... I want to know what the next move is, okay? And that was a problem for me with swing dancing because it's like, 
you know, one person, aka the person that knows how to fucking swing dance, is usually like whipping you around. And I was always like, I can't just be all loosey goosey here. And so I was terrible. It was terrible. Same. I tried it one time. I was drinking at a bar and a guy wanted to dance. And I was like, all right. And again, as you know, I'm not a dancer. I don't have that kind of joy in my fucking heart to just bust a move. Yeah. But I was like drinking and I was like, all right. And he tried to do that thing where they spin you out and bring you back in. And he spun me out and I stopped. I just stood still because I was like, (laughs) the fuck are you doing? (laughs) There was no whip around, come back to me. I'm like, I'm done. (laughs) Like, you've just thrown me into the fucking dance floor. I'm done. I stopped right where I stood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is why now I understand why people take ballroom dancing lessons to like save marriages and shit. Like this is why <laughs> this is why Angela Chase's parents from my so-called life took ballroom dancing. Because it's like, you know, trusting people and 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 learning how to play different roles, like where you have to be the more passive one or the more active one, that kind of stuff. I'm bad at it. I just I just yep. want to like like I don't need I don't want you to dip me because if I fall on the ground, which will happen and has happened then I'm going to be pissed at you for the rest of time. So, and then, look, th- this movie, <laughs> like you said, has ruined people's lives. Um, and I, I I had the poster. I, I liked the movie when it came out. I didn't like the yeah. culture that it influenced. But I had that yellow poster with Vince Vaughn and the big fucking martini glass. Everyone, yes. Couldn't get away from that poster in oh. the early ni- the late 90s. Yeah. Could not. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like, this, the, this movie has persisted... I I don't even know if I can really accurately describe how important it was for me personally, but just like my friend group and my generation almost in a weird way. Right. On this podcast. Like I'm gonna need like a <laughs> like a four-hour mega episode because it was like it it is like that thing where it was like for me, I was really into the 90s sort of independent cinema world mm-hmm. at this time in 96 it was in full swing no pun intended and i had not seen a movie like this in terms of like male friendship before right now this is like something that has now turned into something different right mm-hmm. because then you have after this the judd apatow films and then you have some some form of toxic masculinity that like spun out of this i mean it's like I wanted to I want to say this too. There is a oral history of swingers. <laughs> Bitch. <what? laughs> that is on <laughs> that is on Grantland. <laughs> and it is fascinating. Uh you will have to read it. I will not um, have to read it. <laughs> or I will, not. I will take your not. crib notes. I will take uh, <laughs> listeners can read it. I will take your crib notes. <laughs> Well, and it's like, it's interesting to me because when when you do kind of do this like deep research on the swingers phenomenon, there's a lot of men who are, who were very guided by or loved this. And it's fine because I actually think it's a very good movie. I enjoy it. There's a reason why I've seen it 304,000 times (laughs) in my life. But it is interesting to... I I would just love to hear it from a different person's perspective because it's almost right. like, you know, 
what what was this movie to anybody else but guys? I mean, exactly. did anybody even give a shit? Like, or what? And for me, I was so obsessed with the kind of musical references, but also the friendship part of it, which, you know, I felt at the time I had not seen guys act like that. Like, right. you know, I didn't know guys that were checking in on their friends after a bad night and yeah. bringing up orange juice and shit. I just did not know those type of people at that time, right? Exactly. Exactly. And it definitely, it influenced, it, it was important for me and I think it influenced how I kind of gave a little bit more heft and importance to the importance of those relationships for guys after seeing this yeah. movie. Because again, in my life, it's like, you know, guys get together and talk about women like they're pieces of shit and they're gross or whatever. Like that was kind of what we were coming off of also in the 80s. Like the yeah. real like macho fucking wrestling dude, like, you know, talking about women like they are fucking assholes. But this was kind of like a different, it was a turning point culturally, but it was a turning point in my own life too for the same reason. Like kind of watching men who were kind of around our age being yeah. a little bit more emotionally forthcoming than I had ever seen before. Yeah, and I think for me, you know, I was uh, I was young, and I just I think I really wanted the support of adult friendships. Like I felt like at the right. time, I mean, I was hanging out with like I was still in high school, and so I was hanging out with people who, you know, it just we weren't at that part of our lives yet. I think to where we were needing to support each other in that way. Because ostensibly this movie too, which I think is actually, it works on a lot of different levels because it's not just about male friendship, but it's also about Hollywood and making mm -hmm. it in the business, which it's its own thing. Yes. And I think it's, it's one of the best movies about LA for several different reasons. And I think that that has been said before. Like there's a lot of people that love the whole working actor stories and the disappointments of not getting jobs, which, you know, mm -hmm. is a very inherent to L.A. thing. Absolutely. And I, I lived there for a brief amount of time. And so the funny part was, is that I was fascinated by that part before I lived in L.A. And then when I got to L.A., there was so many moments where I was reminded of that of this movie yes. in a weird way, like where you're like, oh fuck, like this movie has sh sort of shaped my opinion or my, you know, experience of living in Los Angeles. Absolutely. And just like seeing the the bars that they hung out in and, you know, the, the they filmed heavily, I think in Los Feliz and like, you know, they filmed in, in, in areas that I would go Franklin through and be Village. like, yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh my God, this is like that, like that movie is what came to me first when I thought of that kind of shit. Yeah, because that's the thing is that so this this movie is ostensibly about, you know, a group of kind of struggling actors living in Los Angeles. It's sort of headed up by the John Favreau character, whose name is Mike or Mikey. And, you know, they a lot of them have come from the East Coast. Right. So in the story, uh, because, you know, the, John Favreau wrote this script in like two weeks or something. And right. he, and it was, it's, a lot of it is mirrored in his own life, meaning that he did move from Chicago to LA. He was in a relationship that ended. And then, you know, he was essentially friends with these guys. I mean, he knew Vince Vaughn because they were on that movie Rudy together in the mm -hmm. early 90s. And he knew Ron Livingston from IO. And so he was kind of like, he knew the people in the film. And it was a real scrappy, like, 
you know, production, you know, they were just trying to cobble together money to make it. They shot the film on like the short ends of 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 the film stock, you know, short ends where it's like the clips from, you know, they just took like 60 second film s- strips and made a movie out of it. And, right. you know, Doug Lyman, who went on to be like a very famous director, it, he was like the roommate of somebody, you know, some one of the characters in the film. That's how he even got started directing the film. That's wild. But so it was a real like, you know, DIY labor of love, which was again, a, a huge thing in the 90s. Totally. Right? But the whole story is centered around this Mikey character who's just moved to L.A. and he's trying to be a stand-up. You know, he's kind of like hosting an open mic. It's not going very well. And then his other friends who are, you know, these other characters in the film, including Trent, who is played by Vince Vaughn, they're not doing well either, right? (laughs) Like, the running gag is that the Ron Livingston character was almost about to be goofy and didn't and did become goofy and it's like he acts as if it's this fucking like you know who gives a fuck it was goofy but then he really wants it at a certain yeah. point and he gets sad that he didn't get to play goofy he's like well wh- who the fuck am i if i can't even get book goofy like i can't even get that job that i thought was bullshit yes yeah, so it was like like all of this is to say like you know this was the first time that i think i had certainly seen that kind of that kind of light of these guys who are in this friend group and they are all floundering. They're worried that they're not going to be able to make it in LA. Mm-hmm. And that I think is a really real feeling of people. Absolutely. That well, yeah. Them. And that, that yeah. travels through generationally, like where, you know, am I going to make it? Am I going to do it? Like, it, you know, moving somewhere to try to start your life. That's a general theme that I think carries through in you know, t- to this day and always will. Um, yeah. And it's a social anxiety that I think wasn't really explored prior to that. Like, that's what was interesting to me is that, like, the the social anxiety of it extends beyond just will I get a job? And it goes into, you know, like, will I get a partner? Will I get have fun? Will my friends understand me? Like, that was something I hadn't seen really explored um, prior. And it was really interesting to see that in this in this film. Right. Because, like, so this film... Essentially, you know, is it's about this group of guys. It's 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 kind of centered around Mike as he's just trying to get over this relationship. And he was in this um relationship with this woman Michelle for like 6 years. And, you know, they have broken up because he moved to LA. She's potentially seeing someone else and he just cannot get out of it. Like in that way where he is he's trying to come to you for life advice, and you're like, you're, you're playing the same song. That's just mm-hmm. the thing, is that he can't move past it. Meanwhile, his friends, especially Trent, especially the Vince Vaughn character, are very much encouraging him to get over it. And yeah. he's just not ready. He's not ready. And that is the central component to the film, right? Absolutely. And I, am, I didn't read the oral history, but am I correct <laughs> in that? Because I did listen to an, an interview with John Favreau le- recently. I think, is it correct that Vince Vaughn ad-libbed a lot of his lines? Like, they kind of played off of each other a lot? Oh, I could I could almost 100% guarantee it if not. But I, I, yes, this film feels very, like, there are moments of where I'm thinking, oh, this is just them improving as friends, right? And that's what's also interesting to me about this movie, is it's a feeling 
you get that feeling when you watch it for the first time or for the 300,000th time that this is what makes this pairing interesting is that they can they can do that together. They can riff off of each other and create something funny and memorable and good. And that, yeah. you know, Favreau kind of lets Vince Vaughn be the the comedy guy to his straight man. Um, yes. But it's it really works. Like, I like seeing these two together for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have such a language. And I think also created a language. Like, they... Let's just say this. So, this movie launched so many different careers. I mean, it's like... It's when America fell in love with Vince Vaughn. We're mm-hmm. like when we all decided as American citizens we love a extremely tall, sarcastic guy, <laughs> and we and we want him in everything, including a Psycho remake. Like we can't get enough of him, and he like to his credit, he was hunky as shit in this movie. Like he was hell yeah. The the, the hair was as high as heaven, and he was he was definitely he was wearing rings. Like he was the whole rings thing. I mean like. <laughs> like part of what is really great about this movie at least for me in 96 was that they they were part of this scene right in LA at the time which was very obviously have heavily influenced by swing music it was like the swing music resurgence and a lot of the places that they were going to like the Dresden and like swingers the actual well they didn't go to a, the actual swingers coffee shop I don't think I think they went to the cafe 101 I think that was like right. the end of the film was at Cafe 101, right? But the movie is named after Swingers, the diner that's off Beverly, which you and I have have been to several times. Several times. It was either that or El Coyote. Those were where we did our, our business meetings. <laughs> yes, our business <laughs> meetings. That's right. So yeah, so there was like this whole swing resurgence happening in LA and these guys were a part of it. They were going to all of these like places. They were seeing Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and Marty and Elaine, you know, at the Dresden. And so it was like very much like they were like inside the actual music culture of LA at the time, which Mm -hmm. is very interesting. And to me was mind blowing. Like I was like, this is a mind blowing film for that reason. I'm like, here are these like adults who are like living in Hollywood and they're like going out to see bands. And there's like this whole vernacular to the city that I thought was fascinating as a person who was in high school in Georgia. Right. You know, (laughs) like I was like, of course, these are the most glamorous guys ever. You know of what I mean? Of course. And that is, that is again, something that's very funny about this movie is that you're watching these guys try to affect this posture of success when they have none. Yes. So they are also very into the nightlife and the going out and the ordering drinks and being together because that's what they have. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's all, all they, they have, have is their coolness to be able to get into a club from the rest, from the back of the house. Like, they're like... That is, like, their currency. Totally. Like, when you're a piece of shit, you're like, can I get into a club and know the dishwashers? <laughs> I made it, right? But that's the thing, is that this movie was launched, like, it launched Vince, Vince Vaughn, John Favreau, Doug Lyman, Ron Livingston, Heather Graham? I don't even think I remember Heather Graham before Swingers. Um, excuse me, License to Drive? Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> Jesus Christ, how could I forget? How could I forget? But, but you as know an what adult, I mean. as an adult. Yes, yes, as an adult. But there was like this whole, the thing about John Favreau and Vince Vaughn was like, this was kind of like 
again, they created this like cultural touchstone. They created a, a way of being as male friends are. You know, there's the scenes of them playing that hockey game in the yep. um in their apartment, you know, which were are the funniest scenes for me. Is when they're like talking shit Absolutely. at each other with their friend Sue, who you know, is is one of those friends in the friend group that's like a wild card. Talk about wild card, <laughs> right? <laughs> Patrick Van Horn was excellent in this role. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I was like, what a cool guy. Like, I thought he was hot. I was like, what a cool guy. And all they do is 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 basically order food and talk shit at each other while they're playing, you know, whatever it was. I don't know if that was like a Sega game. I can't even remember the the video game system at the time in 96. But, but that's that's what felt, what I loved about watching those scenes is that's what I was used to with male friendships because I watched my brother do it with his friends yep. where they would sit around and play video games and bullshit and like my own friends. So like that felt, it felt nice to see that even though they're posturing so much when they go out that they have a real like connection in a way that most dudes do or did yeah. at the time definitely definitely but it was like so they kind of like john favreau and vince vaughn like cr- kind of created this little universe for all of us now and like they've been in i think they were in like six feature films together yeah it could be more don't hold me to that i believe it's six but there's this one of the films is actually a movie that i pro- i like more than i probably should Four Christmases. Have you ever seen Four oh, Christmases yeah. with Reese Witherspoon? So, John Favreau's character in that film is so fucking great. He plays this like total scary, like MMA fighter guy with like bad tattoos. And he's married to Katie Mixon, who, if you don't know her by name, she was famously in Eastbound and Down, one of the funniest TV shows to ever exist. And she's one of like my favorite southern character actors ever. And and there there's a scene in Four Christmases where they're playing the board game Taboo, <laughs> you know, the one with the buzzer, and it is so fucking funny. Like I think the clip is on YouTube, oh but God. honestly like that that whole sequence cracks me up. But then it's like so they've they've carried, you know, their friendship and their, you know, partnership into multiple movies. Um, and kind of were like, kind, they were kind of like not one without the other for a long time too right. in Hollywood. And then, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like, but Swingers is is their origin story. I feel like you watch this film and you feel like it's so much of their actual friendship or their actual people. And like, it's, to me, I, I loved it for that. I want to say this though. Because I was doing some light research after I found out that I wasn't doing in Bruges this week. If you go to the Swingers Wikipedia page, I love this, by the way. There's like an entire section where it talks about like the awards the movie has won. It was honored at this award ceremony in 2007 called Spike TV Guys Choice Awards. Oh, okay. Lord. This is what, when you I'm talk like, about feminism, this is a dark period for feminism. This is what you mean. <laughs> Thank you. And then I had to look up what the fuck is the Guy's Choice Awards? Every award show ever? 
And it went, it was basically, I was going to say, isn't that every award show? So the Guy's Choice Awards was um, a Spike TV award show that ran from 2007 to 2016. Jesus. Again, dark period. And I just can't believe that this happened. Like, I'm looking at these categories. <laughs> the categories for the Guy's Choice Awards. So Swingers actually won the Guy Movie Hall of Fame. It's like, Jesus Right. But then there's like biggest ass kicker. Ballsiest band. Like, what is that? Like, and disturbed is one of the, so it's like totally uh I think it was a category that was only for um new metal, oh <laughs> perhaps. My God. Luckiest bastard, funniest motherfucker, most unstoppable jock. What the fuck? <laughs> Sickest rhymes. Hottest Jessica. I mean, god damn. What the fuck? Like, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> it just continues on from there. This is, but again, this is what you were saying earlier about how when this movie is discussed, you almost only ever hear about it from the male perspective. Yeah. And men's approach to this film was very different from mine, I think. Yeah. In retrospect, and also just looking at how it's developed over time, where... Dudes took away a lot of the the Trent stuff, you know, the kind of machismo and the the you're know, very boisterous and and you're very confident. Like they took a, a, away a lot of that as being something to aspire to. Yes, and so this movie became a mark of coolness for people who were very not cool <laughs> because they wanted Me to included. be that guy. <laughs> And I don't think it worked for a lot of them. Deep wallet chains aside, it just did not work for most of them. And it's interesting to see what men latched onto in this film as something that was positive or or aspirational to them. Well, and like, it's so puzzling to me that it did get to that fever pitch. Because it is so, to me, so clearly about male insecurity. Like, I feel like the whole Trent character... His coolness and his bravado gets completely dismantled in the last, like, two minutes of the film. Like, yep. And that's the message, really, is that it's it's almost like, yes, you have this, like, very male, very, like, you know, brazen, like, macho-ness going on, but it's ultimately about, you know, men who are not successful and who are trying to take care of each other, and they're, and even the coolest one of them fails at the end like even the one that seems the most confident is a failure too so it's like i don't know it's so funny that people can remove all of that right context and just be like i gotta be this guy money baby woohoo like you know i i don't know like it's it's shocking to think that that's what people a lot of got a lot of people stepped away from this movie with but i'm i agree with you where it's more about male insecurity and the the reason I like seeing, I like that this is kind of the origin story of how we all came to see and know Vince Vaughn and John Favreau as kind of an, a team, an acting yeah. team that was paired together a lot. But it makes sense to me in the same way it makes sense in in Bruges with you know Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, where it's a very opposites attract, odd coupley kind of pairing. 100%. So Mikey is super insecure and can't stop talking about this ex-girlfriend and has no idea where his career is going and is like depressed and sad. And Trent is like, I am not focusing on anything but my own awesomeness. Yes. Um, I have a certain set of skills and I will deploy them 
at will, <laughs> even when they're not warranted. And again, like to watch to watch at the end of the film and see that, like you said, even he is affected by insecurity and by immaturity in a lot of ways. I just yeah. I like this pairing for that reason. I think that they they play off of each other in that opposites attract way very very well um particularly mikey like you can see that when when he's around trent and he's trying to be like trent it doesn't work for him and you can see that he feels it in his heart like he he has the fucking nerve to call women skanks while he's standing in that rank ass apartment of his yes and you you're like oh that is like a trent you can see that is like a trent influential kind of moment where he's like trying to be like that guy who's like yeah women are skanks but he doesn't feel it in his heart, which is shown almost immediately in the next scene where he's like sitting on the floor and sad and like depressed and freaking out. So I kind of I love this pairing for that reason is that it's it's yes, like Spike TV might have walked away with it thinking of it as, the, you know, the guy's Hall of Fame because they say so money and baby this and baby that. But for a lot of us, it's like, oh, we're watching somebody fall the fuck apart because they can't live up to yeah. That bravado. They can't live up to the stand the, the male standard that has been set for them. Yeah. Like I think that Mikey, in a way, is smart enough of a character, right? To understand the difference between like the usefulness of the of the performance, like trans bravado, you know, like the whole like analogy of like bears and rabbits and that kind of stuff like the hunting of uh, hunting as dating type of shit right right i think that he distills parts of it to build confidence but he's not like lock stock and barrel in the misogyny of it in a weird way do you know what i mean like even at, at the end where he meets the girl finally after all of his struggling i don't think he is going yeah, baby, I'm a fucking stud. Like I, I'm, I'm the bear, you know, necessarily. I mean, I, I know no. that there was a moment where he does look across the bar and sees the the rabbit that they've been alluding to, but I don't think he's at that point. He doesn't become Trent at no. the end of the movie. He retains his own sensitivities and his own thoughtfulness and his own insecurities still like he still is a guy who has the insecurities he's just found out that like other people have insecurities too and it's okay right you know what i mean he's not like well now i've been transformed by this magical confident leprechaun that has come into my life and and, you know so that to me is what i think is makes this an interesting movie in a way and it is shocking when you're like i think it's more you know that everybody loves the the comedy of it, like right. the the bravado, the clothes, the music, the the bromance, but it's maybe a little deeper. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if that's me just wanting it to be deeper or that I, you know, that it's deeper. But I don't know. I think it might be deeper. So I think it's a little bit deeper than that. And I think it, it, it's never more evident than in that scene where when Mikey does meet um, Lorraine at the bar and she wants to dance and he's kind of reluctant. But then he can actually dance. He can actually swing dance. And um, Trent and Sue are sitting in a booth, like, weeping with joy <laughs> about the fact that he did it his own way. And they're like, I can't believe he can dance. And they're, like, literally weeping on each other's shoulders that Mikey was able to break through and talk to this woman 
and have a good time. And they're like, they're in his corner, literally. Yeah. But they're having, they're going through the emotional roller coaster of like, he did it, like you said, on his own terms. He's still insecure. He's still who he is. Um, But he surprises them with another layer of, you know, how to get women. That scene is so goddamn funny. So good when they when they cut to him and he's crying and he's just like God bless him God bless Mikey like I laugh so hard when I see that still to this day they're they're a great pairing I absolutely think this movie is a little bit deeper than it has been culturally has shaken out to be yeah um but it also it's it's a great way to see the origin story of Vince Vaughn and John Favreau being great together in a lot of movies yeah. To- totally agree. And I'm really glad we did this theme this week because, um, you know, I know that we had separately wanted to talk about In Bruges and Swingers, but I just like that we're able to bring them together in one episode because it meant that I got to watch a good double feature, as That's we always right. do. It was a great double feature. I loved it. I loved it. If you would like to email us, we are at asawatchydidpod at gmail.com. And we also have uh, social media. You can find us on at I Saw Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you've got a hankering for some merch, please go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop. That's right. All the new bonus episodes will be dropping on your main feed the third Thursday of every month. And we are slowly rolling out the old bonus episodes as well. Uh, you do not have to subscribe or pay for them anymore. They will just be dropping on your main feed. Yes, and I completely forgot that I talked about seven deadly monkeys, and then I saw the hashtag on our <laughs> on our Instagram, and I was like, "Holy fucking shit!" Talk about high school. I might have been in seven deadly monkeys while going to swing night. No. Yeah, I think those two things overlapped. So all I need is you then going to that cafe with your plume feather pen, writing in that journal to complete the trifecta of who Millie was in. <laughs> In high school. I was such an insufferable fucking idiot <laughs> in high school. Like, the more and more we do this podcast, I'm like, I'm rolling out all this information, and I'm like, I was a fucking monster. Oh, Why same. was I into swing music and Seven, the movie Seven? <laughs> God. Because yes, fucking prefrontal cortex hadn't developed. Like, yes. we were all fucking monsters. Your frontal lobe is still growing and changing. Yes. Oh, Absolutely. God. Well, do you want to tell them the movies for next week? Oh, I genuinely can't wait to tell them the movies for next week. Yeah, yeah. You're going to be watching for your homework, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from 1966, and Scenes from a Marriage from 1974. Not the HBO updated version. Scenes yes. from a Marriage from 1974. That's right. And watch the, I think it's like, it was also a Swedish TV show. I think it's... Mm-hmm. Just watch the, the movie version. I think that they're similar or the same, but just watch yeah. the movie version. You can find it. You can find it out there. Okay, Danielle. Well, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. You are so money, baby, and you don't even know it. Oh, my God. I just, like, felt my... All my organs just tense up and shrivel. <laughs> oh, a wallet chain grew out of my hip. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. 
Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel, artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.